today, as promised, we are beginning a new sermon series. Uh, major messages from the minor prophets. And, you know, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes is actually followed by what is called the book of the Twelve, or the book of the Twelve Prophets. Now, the name Minor Prophets uh, was actually given to it not because of the fact that the messages were minor, but because of the books, uh, the fact that the books were small. Hosea is actually the longest 14 chapters of these so-called minor prophets. In fact, uh, the rabbinical tradition in terms of the canon, which is the collection of the Old Testament books together, uh, the 12 writings, they say, were put together, and here's a quote from one of the rabbis, lest one or other of them should be lost on account of its size, if they were all kept separate. So they brought all 12 of these so-called minor prophets into one book. And, uh, of course, we have them in the Bible individually. But their authors lived and labored as prophets uh, in, at different periods, but mostly ranging from the 9th to the 5th century B.C., from the beginnings of the exile on into the beginning of the return from the exile. So in these books that we're going to be looking at, we have not only the earliest and the latest of the prophetic testimonies, but we also have uh, kind of a historical overview of what was happening and, and how they understood where they were at in relationship to God. And what they believed was the message that they needed to hear from God during that time period. Now the arrangement of the twelve is basically chronological uh, into some groups. Uh, the prophets of the pre-Assyrian and Assyrian times are the ones that we have from Hosea up to Nahum. Uh, they're placed first. Uh, and then uh, during the Chaldean period you've got Habakkuk and Zephaniah. And then the last is the group Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi uh, that come uh, basically as the captivity is coming to a close. And in that first group that we're going to be looking at a part, part of, the oldest is actually not first. And the reasoning is, as they always said, it's because it doesn't tell us when, whereas Hosea does tell us when. But Amos probably was actually the first and Hosea then to follow. So that's just a little historical background about these books. The fact is, they were written to people who were struggling, going through tough times. A time in which they weren't sure where God was in relationship to their nation. Because they had always been promised the land. And now they were being taken out of the land. In 1841, Ralph Waldo Emerson put out a collection of essays and poems, and basically it was titled Love and Other Essays and Poems. His focus was on love. His longest essay in that collection was about love. And in that first essay, he says, perhaps we never saw them before, 
and shall never meet them again. Talking about a couple that you run into at random on the street. But we see them exchange a glance or betray a deep emotion. And all of a sudden, we're no longer strangers. We understand them and take the warmest interest in the development of the romance. Because all mankind love a lover. Everybody loves a love story. And I'll be the first one to admit so that my wife doesn't have to diss me in front of you all. I cry more when she and I are watching love stories than I do almost any other time. She and my daughter will get a kick out of it. They'll turn to look to see if Dad's crying yet. Because I usually will. One of the great preachers, Haddon Robinson, uh, he was actually a teacher of preaching. He wrote a book called Biblical Preaching, which is a primary source for the study of what's called expository preaching, which is the style of preaching that I choose to do. Preaching where you take the text and let the text tell us what the meaning is that God wants us to know. Not going at a topic and using proof text, but actually just preaching from a text. And referring to that quote that I just gave you from Emerson, Haddon Robinson said that if this is true, that all mankind love a love story, then the best love book in the entire Bible should be Hosea. And he referred to Hosea as the world's best love story. You know what? I said a minute ago that we all love love stories. Book sales and box office tallies prove that point. In fact, one of the oft-quoted quotes regarding love actually came from a movie that came out during my senior year of high school back in 1970. A book written by Eric Siegel in a movie called Love Story. And in that movie came the line, love means never having to say you're sorry. Really? I don't think so. Unless you're talking about the perspective of the person who has been wronged. I might say if, if somebody has done me wrong and they come and say you're sorry, I might say to them, you know, I love you and you don't need to say you're sorry. But the fact is, is that we often fall, don't we? We often make mistakes. And while similar to the millions of other love stories told around the world, stories of broken vows, broken homes, broken lives, Hosea is so unique that it does rank as one of the most amazing love stories in all of literature. And that's why we're going to begin with Hosea. The book that Robinson referred to as the world's best love story. Well, let me ask you a question. How do you understand love? That's where I was coming at in my communion meditation. How do we understand that word? We use it in a lot of different ways, don't we? Don't tell me you've never said, Oh, I love that car. 
Oh, I love that dresser. Oh, I love my dog. I hope you're not using the word in that way when you also say, I love my husband or I love my wife. We use the word love in so many different ways. And in his song, Corey Asbury was struggling with trying to find a word to use to describe the kind of love that chases us down. The kind of love that fights until it finds us. The kind of love that's about a man who runs out to greet that son that's been lost and is returning. And he chose the word reckless. There's another singer by the name of Michael Card. I don't know if you're familiar with Michael Card, but he's also written a lot of Christian songs. He, uh, in fact, has written a, 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 a whole uh, series of songs and, and also a, a book entitled Inexpressible. Hesed and the Mystery of God's Loving Kindness. Now, to properly say the word, you've got to have your throat full. Because in Hebrew, it's chesed. But he said that Hosea is a novel of chesed. That mercy, that kind of love that is given to us that we don't even understand. I and others, others before me, have chosen the word scandalous. And let's see if maybe you agree or disagree with me as we go on in to this book of Hosea. Our sermon series, like I said, is Major Messages from the Minor Prophets, and today I've titled my sermon, A Scandalous Love, based on chapter 1. And it starts with the man. The man. Look at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Mary, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. A divided kingdom. The northern kingdom of ten tribes had separated from Judah and the half-tribe of Manasseh and they had two different kings. And it's giving us a time period. All we know about Hosea basically is what we have right here in this verse. His name comes from the same root as we get Joshua and Jesus. It's a word that means he saves or deliverance. And we know nothing about his father. We don't even really know what that name Barry means. There's, there's some speculation and some thought. From the kings that are listed, Hosea was doing his work from about 750 to 710 B.C. And Martin Buber, one of the great German theologians of years past, Martin Buber studying both Jeremiah and Hosea said that he thinks that Jeremiah is Hosea's posthumous disciple. In other words, Jeremiah was an heir to what Hosea said and what Hosea's mission was. 
That's about all we know about this man. Was that he was a prophet and that the Lord came to him. Now, as we go on through the book of Hosea, we're going to see that he was a man also knowledgeable of, about his, the nation's history. And he was knowledgeable about what God had said in the books of the Torah. But we don't know much about him as a person. And then comes just a couple of verses about his marriage. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. The marriage. Guess what? We don't know anything about Gomer. And we certainly don't know anything about her father, Deborah. And I don't think this is by accident. I think that Hosea and his father, Gomer and her father, I think that they're all there with basically unknown paths because the emphasis isn't going to be on Hosea. The emphasis is going to be upon what's going on in the nation. Now think about what we just read. Hosea obediently marries a woman who's unfaithful and has been unfaithful with countless men. She lives a life of prostitution and refuses to repent and continually sells herself. Now I don't know about you, but that's where I got my word from. To me, that is scandalous. How could God even ask a man to marry a person who was of that background? It went directly against the law in Leviticus. In fact, in the laws of Leviticus, she shouldn't have been alive. She should have been stoned to death. And yet God tells Hosea, Go and marry this person. Almost every commentator I read said that they believe that this is in fact a story that's so bizarre that it is in fact literal and true. And why would God do that? I mean, can you imagine having to walk into a brothel to purchase your wife? Not just once, but twice. You see, that's exactly what God commanded Hosea to do because He wanted to demonstrate to Hosea so that Hosea could speak to the people from a, an experience of knowledge. He wanted Hosea to know exactly what God's love looks like. It's intended to shock because it's shocking. It's intended to be atrocious because from our perspective it is. It's supposed to seem unfair because that's exactly what it is. Grace is never fair. How can we think of somebody getting something they don't deserve as fair? And the stubborn disobedience of Israel and each of us 
is remarkably overcome by the superior, stubborn nature of God's love. You see, we who have zero rights to expect anything other than punishment and pain, we still get everything, don't we? So, I guess I, I should ask the question, is God's love scandalous? You tell me. I, th I think it is. I mean, I already alluded to it, but what kind of shepherd leaves 99 sheep to go out and search one that's lost? What kind of a father jumps up off the porch to hug and kiss and throw a party for a rebellious son who squandered all of his money? What kind of a Savior allows a woman with a bad reputation to kiss and clean his feet with her tears? What kind of a king pardons a lifetime criminal while hanging on the cross for crimes that he committed and says, this day you'll see me in paradise? What kind of a Messiah would forgive the very people who are spitting on Him, who are mocking Him, while He is enduring the pain of the cross? What kind of a God would send His own Son to die for the redemption of rebellious people? What kind of a God commits to love forever and does everything He can to prove His love to people who do everything they can to disprove, disprove their love. You see, the answer, I think, is, in fact, a scandalous God. The God of the Bible. The God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The God who loves you and He loves me in just this way. So what's the message of these verses? Verse 4, down to chapter 2, verse 1. And the Lord said to him, that is, He said to Hosea, son's just been born, remember? Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I'll put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I'll break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I'll show no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, You are my people, and to your sisters, You have received mercy. May God add His blessing to our reading of the Word.
when we look at Hosea, there are people who say the book can basically be divided into two, two sections. Chapters 1 to 3, the man and his marriage, and chapters 4 to 14, Hosea's message. But I want to share with you today that I believe that a preview of the message contained is contained right here in the births and the naming of the three children. You see, though Jezreel means God sows or plants, in Hosea's day, it elicited the memory of the bloodshed that occurred right there in Jezreel when Jehu ascended to power. A scene of many significant and violent events. And, and, and in fact, judgment. In fact, verses 4 to 9 are all about judgment. God's going to bring the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu. You know what else happened at Jezreel? Do you remember a queen whose name was Jezebel? And how she had decided that she was going to in fact have all of these false prophets and worship false gods and Elijah rose up to speak against her? Guess where all that happened? Jezreel. Jezreel. Now, think again about what God is having Hosea do. He says, Hosea, now that you've gone out and married this woman with a bad reputation, I want you to name your son after the valley where all kinds of bloodshed took place. What did Hosea do? He obeyed God. He obeyed God. Because the naming of that son was a prophetic judgment to the people that if they didn't turn their ways, and they didn't, that judgment and bloodshed was going to come upon them. And it did. This daughter, Lo Ruhama, or No Mercy. Now, think about that. God promises to spare Judah not by bow or sword or horsemen, but He promises to, to spare them even though He's going to show Israel no mercy. And then, after she's weaned, in other words, after a period of time, they have a third child. And the third child's name is Loami. Literally, no people. Now, let's go back to Exodus. What was the promise that God had given to Abraham? Wasn't it a promise to say to these people, you will be my people and I will be your God? But now in the prophecy of Hosea, Hosea is saying to going to be saying to them by means of the symbolic naming of His own sons. Judgment is coming. Not only is judgment coming, but you're going to have no mercy. And in fact, it's going to be so bad that I'm going to step away and I'm going to say you're not even My people and I'm not your God. That's a pretty tough message, isn't it? 
But let's go back to the story of the marriage. When, as we'll see as we move on in the book, when Gomer does leave Hosea and does become rebellious against Hosea and does return to her adulterous ways, what does God have Gomer do? I mean, Hosea do? Go out and buy her back. Redeem her. You see, I think what we have in Hosea is a picture of the leadership of Israel and Judah in Hosea. And a history of how we behave in the person of Gomer. I've seen it too many times. I have family members who have been facing serious surgery that said, oh, come and pray for us, pray for us. And after the surgery was done, got very involved in church for a while. But then, slipped away again. Many of you remember that Wednesday. See, I even remember what day it was. Remember that Wednesday when all of a sudden our nation was being bombed literally by jet airplanes. And the church when I got home that night was packed with people. And I didn't organize the service. And for the next several Sundays, we had attendances like we had never had. But then, after a couple months, what happened? It started slipping back into our old ways. And I'm not pointing a finger. I've been there. I've had times in my life when I've said, Lord, man, I'm going to start reading Your Word every day. I'm going to start having devotions and meditation. And I've done it for a while and then all of a sudden, missed it a day, missed it two days. i got an accountability partner now. Because every morning, first thing in the morning, my wife comes and joins me in the office. And we begin our day with a reading of the Old Testament and a reading of the New Testament. We've already read through the New Testament once this year. We're all the way back to Acts on the second time through. And we're reading the Old Testament all the way through together. You know, I'm kind of hoping that the family that reads together stays together. Maybe she'll stay with me if she knows she has to keep reading God's Word with me on a daily basis. But we've all been there, haven't we? We've all been there in one way or another, probably physically. Oh, I'm not going to eat this anymore. I'm not going to drink this. I'm not going to have any more caffeine. I'll tell you what, I am. And my doctor told me I'm not even going to try to take you off ca caffeine when he found out that I drink 18 cups of coffee a day. But I can tell you this, right now, the other night it was late. But we were out there doing our walking. We're getting two miles at least in every day. And the benefit of it is, man, I, I just feel like I've got tons more energy, but also my morning blood sugars have been under 90. 
But it's just as easy to miss one day and then miss another and then all of a sudden, we're not there. Right? You see, the message is that because of our behavior, because of our rebelliousness, God wants us to know that there will be a time when judgment will come. But then notice how he moves on in verse 10 down to the first verse of chapter 2. It's about deliverance. I mean, the clue should be with the first verse, the first word of verse 10. Yet, yet, even though there's going to be judgment, yet, the number of the children of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. Who God tell that to? Abraham. Even when he was too old to have kids. You're going to have a son, and through you will be nations. More numerous than the stars. More numerous than the sand. And here is Hosea through God saying, even though there's going to be judgment, yet there's going to be deliverance. And to the place where it was said to them, you're not my people, it's going to say, you're children of the living God. Not just my people now, but children of God. And to a nation that was divided, He says, the children of Judah and the children of Israel will be gathered together. And they'll appoint for themselves one head. One head who is again properly in the line of David. Now why do you think we have that genealogy at the beginning of Matthew? It's to show us that Jesus was rightfully heir to the throne of David. And he says, though they'll go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. In other words, it'll be what the name really means, a day of sowing and a day of planting, not a day of judgment and bloodshed. And to the brothers, you are my people, and to the sisters, now you have received mercy. What's Hosea prophesying about? Coming of the Messiah, Jesus. When all of that's going to take place. Because you see, when the nation of Israel came back from their bondage and their exile, they still did not believe that they were free. They still believed they were living in exile. Why? Even though they had their land, even though they had their nation, they didn't have their freedom to rule themselves. Rome was still overseeing them. But in the true promised return, when the people will be together in the line of David, Jesus, will be one, and we won't just be God's people, we'll be the children of God. So how do we make application of this? I just want you to think about something. Unfaithfulness 
resulted in rejection. I am really bothered by those who say you can't fall away. I know all of the passages that they use, but there are a ton more who talk about people like Hymenaeus and Alexander who did have their faith shipwrecked. And over and over in the book of Hebrews is the warning that we have to stay faithful. We have to be obedient. Because unfaithfulness does result in the possibility of our being rejected. But I can't leave you with a negative message. Because Paul was talking about this very same thing, about how the nation was unfaithful and how God had allowed them to go into exile. And how we ourselves tend to be disobedient and rebellious. But you know what he says in Romans 3? He says this, Does the faithlessness of the people nullify the faithfulness of God? And he says no. Regardless of how unfaithful we might be, God is still faithfully there offering His covenantal love if we will simply repent and turn to Him. Now, I have to illustrate this because there is a lot of misunderstanding about repentance. Do you know that the Bible in some translations says that Judas repented? Uses that word. But the Greek word behind what Judas did was not metanoia. It was the Greek word metamelomai. Metanoia, which is the word that's used for Christian repentance, means that we not only are sorry, but we have a change of mind. The word metanoia just means we're sorry about what we did. And we're not really willing to do the work to make a change. And so what did Judas do when he was metamelomai when he repented of giving away an innocent man. He went out and hung himself. What did Peter do when he also basically betrayed, denied the Lord Jesus Christ? Three times. I don't know him. I don't know him. Cursed. I don't know the man. Quit. Leave me alone. What did he do? He repented because Jesus confronted him and said, do you love me? And he wasn't asking a question that could easily give just a yes answer. He was asking a question that had a required response. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Tend to my lambs. 
See, God loves us. He loves us in such a way that He would even ask Hosea to do something that was rather scandalous, to marry somebody who was a prostitute, just so that Hosea would understand what it's like to have your wife leave you and go and beg her to come back and buy her back because that's what God did for the nation of Israel. That's what He did, in fact, do for us when He gave His Son to die so that we could be forgiven and so that we could live. That's why it's hard for me sometimes. It's hard for me to realize that I am doing so little when God did so much. How can I expect the God of the universe who's willing to have His Son die the most brutal death ever think that I'm okay just because I'm willing to get out and go to a building on Sunday and Wednesday, do a couple of things. Now, being a Christian means giving our lives, taking up our cross, serving 24-7, 365. Let's pray. Father, Your love is just so overwhelming. You do things that we would not even think of doing to show us that love. Forgive us for taking it so lightly sometimes. Speak to us as we sing our hymn of commitment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Great is thy faithfulness. Let's sing about God's love.